I think it may rain. Take your Bibles, turn to, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. We have made arrangement with Brother Steve and Brother Les to take all the young children out. If you so desire, it's completely up to you as parents whether you want your children to go out or not. It is a adult subject matter, I guess you would say. I don't want to have you to have to do any explaining you don't want to do. You'll have to excuse my informalness. I am warm today. My thermostat has been out of whack ever since I got back from Romania. They like it hot and keep it hot. <clears throat> you go into a, a place, you'll find most of them have an air conditioning and it's not on. Because they don't like air conditioning. It's, it scares them. It makes you sick. It makes me sick when they don't have it. Sunday morning I got up to preach in 17 Romania and the air conditioner's blowing right on me. I think, oh, praise God. And they turned it off. <clears throat> Do they open a window or a door? No. 90 degrees, 90% humidity. No air conditioning and the doors and windows shut. No fan. I guess those people don't sweat. I don't know. But this one white boy really did a lot of sweating. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> tonight's subject is one of those that probably for the next couple of weeks I would delightfully skip if it was just up to me. Uh, I'm never very, com very comfortable talking about physical intimacy and marriage, and uh, so we're going to start off with some jokes. It says the pastor was visiting the fourth grade Sunday school class to talk about marriage as part of the lesson. He asked the class, what does God say about marriage? And immediately one little boy replied, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Another little boy was taking a history exam, and one of the questions was, who was Patrick Henry? He wrote, Patrick Henry was a man who got married. And then he said, give me liberty or give me death. Someone has said that it has been proven that marriage life is healthier Statistics show that single people die sooner than married people. So if you're looking for a long life and a slow death, get married. Perhaps a funny way to look at a very serious problem. No one can say that the institution of marriage in our day is not in trouble. The facts are that well over one half of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. And that many people in this day choose to live together instead of getting married. And that just proves that marriage is not honored in the way that it once was. One of the many problems that Paul addresses in his letter to the church at Corinth is marriage. This is not at all surprising in the light of the prevalence of immorality in the city of Corinth. The Corinthian church had people in it that had multiple marriages and multiple divorces. By that I don't mean two or three. 
And I'll give you some more statistics next week when we look at marriage and divorce. But some of these people have been married 20 and 25 times. Also had individuals who had been under the influence of the Gnostic aestheticism who had questions concerning the appropriateness of marriage. Some had the idea that being single and celibate was more spiritual than being married. And so those are kind of the problems that Paul has in the back of his mind as he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. And we're going to begin reading in in verse number 1 of chapter number 7, and we're going to look at the first seven verses. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Well, that kind of goes counterclockwise to our culture today. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with, the cons- with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. 1 Corinthians 7 is the longest teaching on marriage in the New Testament. And I want you to note five things that Paul says about this situation. First of all, he says that abstinence is good. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, Paul begins by saying, now concerning the things that you wrote to me, it could be that he is dealing with questions that the Corinthians themselves have raised. Christians in Corinth were young in the faith. They were surrounded by sexual immorality, and they were confused as to God's plan and purpose in marriage. So perhaps they merely sat down and wrote the Apostle Paul asking answers to the questions. But I think we should note that the verse says, concerning the things that you wrote me, not now concerning the things that you ask me. So are they writing asking for Paul's wisdom, or are they writing their position to Paul, asking for Paul's agreement? It's possible that those who are pushing this celibacy in Corinth are writing to Paul, who is obviously single at this time, at least in this point in his life, and we'll see that in, chapter, in verse 7, expecting that he would agree with their position. But whatever their reason for writing, marriage is in a mess in Corinth. Adultery was a common practice. And in the light of that, some Christians were advocating celibacy as desirable, maybe even obligatory for all believers, even those who are already married. Some were even elevating celibacy as being somehow superior spiritually. When Paul says to to touch a woman, it is not reference to a 
casual contact. It is a touch that stimulates and it's used in the Bible as a figure of speech for physical intimacy. We find it in Genesis 20 and verse 6 and Ruth chapter 2 and verse 9, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 29. Just one place that I think I have to say that the NIV really misses it on this particular verse because they translate it, it is good for a man not to marry. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about sexual intercourse. Paul says that singleness, as long as it is celibate, is good. But the celibate life is not the only way to live. And celibacy will not work for everyone. And in Corinth, surrounded with sinful pleasure and sinful pressure, a fulfilling marriage was not only helpful, but probably necessary. In the Bible, marriage is viewed as the norm and the single life as the exception. And those who would seek to prohibit marriage as something evil are identified by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 in the first five verses as being false teachers. Although Virginity was not the norm in Corinth, as it is rapidly becoming in our own day. Paul recommends it, but it will take character and strength to live up to its standard. Abstinence is good. Sex is for marriage. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. There's some very simple things I don't want us to just pass over and not even think about because they are so simple. And that is, first of all, he says it's a monogamous relationship. He says marriage is to be one man and one woman. Just this week, I was actually just walking through the living room to the kitchen and I heard a woman on television describe herself as a serial monogamist. You know what a serial monogamist is? That means that she only has a sexual relationship with one man at a time. As if that were a good thing. I didn't even look to see who it was. I thought it was quite odd. But that really is not that odd in Hollywood in our day. God's ideal, however, is one man and one woman for a lifetime. Now, you do find examples of polygamy in the Bible, that they are never without consequences and they are never without the disapproval of God. If we go all the way back to the beginning, in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, God put together the very first marriage, husband and wife created in the image of God, living together in fellowship with the Lord and with each other. And then sin entered the human race. And God's ideal of a monogamous marriage became distorted. As soon as Genesis chapter 4, Lamech is introduced to us as the first polygamist. In chapter 16, Abraham commits adultery with Hagar. In chapter 19, homosexuality ravages the city of Sodom. And Lot commits incest with his daughters. Later, Shechem 
rapes Diana, and Judah commits adultery with Tamar. And we haven't even got out of the first book of the Bible yet. God's ideal of marriage began to be destroyed in Genesis, and the assault on marriage in the family continues even today. Obviously, the reason that is given by Paul in this letter is not the only reason for marriage. We can find at least five biblical reasons for marriage. First of all, procreation. Genesis 1, 28 says to be fruitful and multiply. It was God's plan to populate the earth. Secondly, pleasure. God designed marriage as a pleasurable experience. Proverbs 5 talks about the the satisfaction that a husband finds in the physical body of his wife and vice versa. And the Song of Solomon from begin to end is all about physical intimacy. Marriage was meant to be enjoyable. It is third, a partnership. Marriage is for partnership. God says you need a helper. In Genesis 2, 18, God says that he was going to give Adam a helpmeet, a helper, because it was not good for him to be alone. He needed a helper. And in marriage, God gives us a friend and a partner. The fourth thing is a picture. Marriage is given as a picture in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32 of a symbol of God's relationship to his church. And fifth, the one that we see in our text tonight is purity, to keep us from giving in to temptation. So marriage is for procreation, for pleasure, for partnership as a picture and as purity. These are the reasons that the Bible gives, and Paul is just talking about one of them. He's not saying this is the only one. So physical intimacy is for married people, not adults, not those who think they're ready for it, not consenting adults. Physical intimacy is for married people married to each other. Paul does not say that physical intimacy was to between a man and a woman, but between a husband and a wife. The second thing that we just will note and pass on is that it says that it is a heterosexual relationship, one man and one woman. So sex is for marriage. Third, submission is mutual. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So in verses 3 through 5, we discuss the importance of a physical relationship within marriage. Paul lays down the basic principle when he says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. I want you to notice the word due, or the word duty. It's a very strong word. It is a word that means it's an obligation. The husband has a duty to meet his wife's physical needs. And the wife has a duty to meet her husband's physical needs. 
And the emphasis here is on giving, render. Present tense imperative. That means it's a command and it is a continuous command. The emphasis then is on I owe you instead of you owe me. We owe our mate affection. And the world tells us if we don't do it, somebody else will. Since such affection is owed, it is not something that has to be earned. It's not something to be used as a bribe or a reward for good behavior or withheld as a threat or a punishment. While sexual expression is forbidden outside of marriage, it is commanded within the marriage relationship. I can't go on without saying it is in the area of affection that men and women differ maybe the most. Women see physical intimacy as a response to closeness, affection. Men see physical intimacy as a means to closeness. And sometimes that puts them at odds. But unless you think this is a burden, Paul says, puts the matter in perspective in verse 4. He says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband. And the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Your body, regardless of what our, our culture says, your body is not yours alone. When you got married, you gave your body to someone else. It's still yours, but it's not yours alone. Now it belongs to your mate. Husbands, your wife has a claim on your body. Wives, your husband has a claim on your body. This mutuality flies in the face of all the commonly held notions of Paul's day. In Paul's day, that was a one-way street. Men had all the rights. Women had all the responsibilities. Most non-Christian husbands in that day would have been shocked to learn that their bodies belonged to their wives not just the other way around. <clears throat> so submission is mutual. Fourth, physical intimacy is not a test of spirituality. He's saying <clears throat> celibacy is not more spiritual than people who have a marriage and have a physical relationship. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul counsels that being apart for too long is dangerous. From what Paul says in these verses, there are Christians who are making a celibate out of their mate by withholding physical intimacy. Since Paul commands them to stop what they're doing, stop depriving each other, they were obviously Christians in Corinth who were already withholding physical intimacy from their mates. Since Paul puts this instruction in the form of a command, it is not just a suggestion. Neither the husband nor the wife has the authority to deprive their mate of physical intimacy. Notice that Paul speaks of both the husband and the wife. It's the wife who has who makes it her priority to meet the physical needs of her husband, and likewise the husband makes his priority meeting the wife's physical needs. 
Then Paul gives very strict requirements regarding abstinence within marriage. He says it should be by mutual consent. The decision to abstain from a physical relationship must be a decision that's mutually agreed on by both parties, the husband and the wife. That it is to be done for important reasons, and maybe I should have said spiritual reasons, to give, so that they might give themselves to prayer and fasting. Now, God does not command, nor does he even recommend abstaining from a physical relationship within marriage. But he does permit it for short periods for spiritual purposes. And the third thing is short periods. We all understand <clears throat> that the Christian home and marriage in particular is an area of spe- special attack in our day by Satan. Paul says that a prolonged period without physical intimacy provides an opportunity for Satan to give temptation in that area. The interesting thing to me is that Satan does everything in his power to promote sex outside of marriage, and he does everything within his power to disrupt sex within marriage. Now, this is a very practical piece of advice. He says men and women do well to take note of that. Many men in particular have experienced Satan's temptations because they have been too long apart from their wives. Physical intimacy is not a test of spirituality. And fifth, marriage is not required. Now, this flies in the face of the current Jewish thoughts, which said if you're 20 years old, a male, and not married, you're in sin. You're sinful because you're not following God's commands. Paul says, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Now, some people have read this in chapter 7 and have said because of it that chapter 7 is not inspired. Because Paul says this teaching is a concession and not a commandment. And in verse 12, he says, but to the rest I speak and not the Lord. But Paul is not saying these are his own ideas. He is saying this is new truth, which the Lord did not speak on when he was here. And although he couldn't point back to specific words that the Lord had shared, he was speaking now with divine authority and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that he believes that in some ways it might be better if all the Corinthians could be single as he is. Now, there are some obvious advantages to being single and in the ministry. You don't have any distractions. You don't have to meet with anybody else's schedule. If you want to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, that's not a problem. If you want to go to bed at 7 o'clock at night, that's not a problem. If you have to be gone for days on end, that's not a problem. You're not answerable. However, he also says that this is a concession, not a commandment. And let me just point out that I think there's a particularly 
great principle if we learn it, not just in this area, but in all of our life. Paul recognizes this as a personal conviction rather than a general principle for everyone. Now, I try to preach general principles. That's those things that are in the text that apply to everybody. Now, I have some convictions of my own. Now, I'll just give you an example. Most of you are the ones who've been here long enough know that Debbie and I homeschooled when Nikki was small. That was a personal conviction. There was nowhere that I could say that you're wrong for sending your child to Christian school or you're wrong for sending your child to public school. That was a personal conviction. Sometimes we hear people stand in the pulpit and preach personal convictions as if they were general principles. And Paul is saying here, this is a conviction of my own, not necessarily applying to all of you. A conviction is a personal view of what is best for my life, but it is not binding on all of you. When Paul says, for I wish that all men were even as myself, he's putting himself among the unmarried and the widows. It would seem at the time of this writing that Paul was unmarried. And though Paul was unmarried when he wrote this letter, most scholars believe that he's probably married at one time. In Paul's day, Jews considered that marriage was a duty. To the extent that a man reaching 20 years of age without having been married was considered to have sinned. Every every rabbi was expected to be a married man. Also, by Paul's own words, it is likely that he was a member at one point of the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 10, Paul says, I cast my vote against them, the them being Christians. An unmarried man could not be a member of the Sanhedrin. So what happened to Paul's wife? The Bible doesn't say what happened to Paul's wife. There are two main theories advanced. First, it is possible that Paul's wife left him and divorced him when he became a Christian. It is also possible that his wife died sometime before or after he became a Christian. But all we really know is that he was likely that he was married before, and we know that he is not married when he writes this letter. And there is no mention or appearance of a wife for Paul in the book of Acts. Now, in these verses, Paul says that he sees singleness and celibacy as a matter that is related to one's gifting and calling. But I have to make a distinction, so listen carefully. Paul is not saying that that celibacy is a spiritual gift. There is no such thing as the gift of celibacy. If you go to the Bible and you look where the Bible lists the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, you will find there's no listing for the gift of celibacy. So 
Paul does not call celibacy a gift, but simply says that each person has their own gifting. Celibacy is not listed, as I said, in the scriptures in any of those places where the spiritual gifts are enumerated. Every other spiritual gift, and I think this is important, every other spiritual gift is related to a function and can be used as a verb. For example, the gift of teaching involves teaching. So what exactly does the gift of celibacy do? Let me conclude by saying, uh, if we read just a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, which we'll look at in detail next time, we find these words, it is better to marry than to burn. Now, the reference is not to the fires of hell. You're going to hell if you don't marry. That's not what it's saying. It's talking about the fires of passion. Marriage serves as a legitimate release from the fires of sexual desire. What he is saying, and he's talking, I think, primarily to the single people here, is that if you are single and you find that fighting sexual temptation is a daily, constant battle, then you need to pursue marriage. If all your energy is directed toward fighting the battle for purity every day of your life, the best solution is not more self-discipline. It's a spouse. Marriage is the best answer for that problem. Next week we look at what the Apostle Paul says about Marriage and divorce, and I'm almost as thrilled about that one as I am about this one. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Sometimes it's difficult for us because life is difficult. And I know it doesn't apply to everyone in this place, but the principles are there, and we need to be able to tell others what the word says. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us this evening as we look in our hearts and lives and see how it is that we might apply what we learn. Help us to be unselfish with our affection for our spouses. Let us be consumed about how we might make our husband or our wife more fulfilled. Let us be more concerned about what we owe than what other people owe to us. Father, I pray that you guide and direct in our closing this evening, and I pray that you apply to each of our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.